Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Amos, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seed of violence, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile." and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Our epistle letter this morning comes from uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 16th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, There was a rich man who who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off at Lazarus' side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So I say this for now. As, uh, I guess I could have said this in the announcements, but I, I, I kind of wanted to say it now. Uh, to, I, I wanted to say thank you to everybody who helped out yesterday. So yesterday was a real busy day. Fred Edmonds' funeral was here in the morning. And then... The, uh, church picnic was in the afternoon, and a lot of people from uh, musicians who came in when they don't usually come in to a lot of people downstairs who uh, prepared food and set out food and waited on tables and washed dishes, spent a lot of time here yesterday. And, and on, on one level, there's a sort of, we got to hang out with each other and we got to spend time with people who are close to us. You, you know, in the evening, it was kind of fun. We goofed off and played games and and in the morning, we got to be with people that we cared about and show them our love. Uh, 
but on an even bigger level, putting hands and feet to the gospel makes a difference in people's lives. It's one thing to say to people, we believe that Jesus is Lord of the universe because He died and rose from the dead. It's another thing to serve them, many of whom, many of Fred and Barb's family, we don't know personally, to serve them with the gospel, not just we sang hymns that have the gospel in them. I tried to preach the gospel in my sermon. But a lot of you guys actually were the hands and feet in Jesus. You made the gospel tangible and real in a significant way. And so if I say thank you, which is what I would have said in the announcements, which I do thank you, it's sort of shallow. It's bigger than thank you. It's yesterday at this church, Jesus was Lord of the universe in a real visible way. And it's really weird to say thank you to you guys for that. So I'll just say that God is good and that his glory was made known through you guys believing in the gospel and then actually living out the gospel. All right, uh, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Uh, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Uh, what, what, what has he not made his own? It's hard to talk about Paul because he doesn't speak in discreet little sound bites. He has long sort of flowing arguments that move uh, sometimes chapters uh, organic units. You can't just pick out a part of him and sort of guess what he means. I do not consider that I've made it my own. Refers back to the previous verses, which we looked at last week, right? Where he says here, let me read these to you again. He says, that I may know Jesus in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to know Jesus. I want Jesus to know me so that when the rubber meets the road, and the resurrection from the dead happens, I get to participate in the renewal of all things. I want to be a part of that in the name of Jesus. Not that I, is what he says next, not that I've already claimed this, obtained this, or I'm already perfect. I, I haven't yet reached this. So Paul, I mean, it's obvious that so Paul's not been raised from the dead because he hasn't died. But from their perspective, the resurrection of the dead, Jesus' resurrection from the dead meant that all things were in the processes of being renewed. And Paul says, I'm not there yet. I don't completely know Jesus like I want to know Jesus. I haven't, I'm not yet living the resurrection life 100%. There's something, there's something, so I know that the Bible teaches us to be content. Paul, the next chapter over, is going to say, I've learned in everything to be content. He means in all of his physical circumstances. There, there's, there's a, a part of Christian living is saying, wherever God has me at any moment in my physical circumstances, I can be content. But, what I'm saying is don't hear what I'm not saying. But, a super important part of Christianity is a godly discontent. Is an unwillingness to be satisfied with the status quo. If the world is broken, and if I'm broken too, to act like, okay, let's just keep everything the same. I don't want to change. I don't want to grow. That's actually the reverse of godliness. That's sort of coming to a sort of a quid pro quo arrangement with my own flesh or sort of a live and let live arrangement with the world, which Paul refuses to do. I have not yet achieved the resurrection of the dead. There's more work to go. Look, sometimes we need to have the attitude of a serious athlete. 
who refuses to be content with their previous personal best time, who refuses to be content with the amount of weight they can lift, refuses to be content with the amount of free throws they can make in a row. That sort of like push and drive. Underneath the grace of God, you can't do this on your own, right? This is the resurrection of Jesus that does this. That's essential to Christian living. That let's not be happy with where we're at. Let's get closer to Jesus. Let's represent Jesus to ourselves and to the community in a more profound and tangible way. That's sort of like athletes. You hear stories about athletes who are like that, right? Who just won't stop. Will push and push and push. Which, in fact, this is why Paul uses an athletic analogy in the rest of this text here. One thing I do, and this is, uh, Paul frequently speaks in, uses athletics as uh, analogy for the Christian life. He does it here too. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining for, this is race, this is uh, running a race analogy. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Like a runner who's completely focused on doing this race, all I want to think about is this prize of knowing Jesus. There's three parts of this analogy here. First of all is the forgetting the things that are behind. This is, you guys have heard this, some of you have heard the Satchel Page, uh, the, the, I don't even know if it's apocryphal, the Satchel Page quote about, you know, when you're running, don't look behind you because you don't know what's going to be gaining on you. That's sort of like, uh, you know, if you're running a race, you're not worried about the other runners. You run your race and you can't control What's behind you? Paul says, that's the way I'm going to be as a runner. I'm going to forget what's behind me. We'll come back to that in a second. And then I'm going to strive. I'm going to strain is the word the ESV uses here. I'm going to strain for this goal, the goal of knowing Jesus, because I want that prize, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Those three things are what marks the Christian life for Paul. So first of all, let's talk about uh, forgetting what lies behind. We as Christians should forget what lies behind. This isn't a blanket anti-historical statement, right? It's Jesus died and rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. You should remember that. It should be a part of your... He's not saying forget everything in the past. It's not a radical sort of postmodern, postmodern disregard for anything that's come before us. This isn't some sort of uh, over-the-top carpe diem he's, he's uh, urging us to here. But... In a sense, there are things that are behind us that need to be forgotten. That what does Paul mean? He could mean any number of things. There's some, there's, there's some things that, there's some sins in the past of each one of us that it would be nice to forget. I think I've told some of you the story before. I, I knew a guy at Good Shepherd who was diagnosed in his 50s, uh, early 60s with early onset Alzheimer's. And uh, he and his wife were planning on, uh, playing golf together. They both loved golf and they were going to play golf together in their retirement. And she was just crushed. That plan of hers was gone and she was crushed. He though was actually kind of good with it. And the reason was is, and he would say, I have so much stuff in my past that I would love to forget. And I consider this, he wasn't like, he wasn't like pie in the sky. He, he knew it was a bad situation. And he was sad about it too. But this part, he was like, this is a gift of God. I'm going to be able to forget these things that I've done in my past. Is that what Paul's talking about? 
maybe, I don't think it's, it's exactly what he's talking about. He's not saying forget the sins in your past. I think in the context here, here's what he's talking about. He's saying, earlier on in the chapter, I'll read a little bit of this to you, that in Paul's past, he had this thing that he wanted to forget. And it wasn't sin. wasn't anything wrong with it at all. It was his identity. Back up in verse 5, Paul says, or verse 4, he says, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Like, I've got the human life nailed down tight. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. These are all things that in Paul's socioeconomic and in his religious situation, these are things that he could say, I'm good to go here. Circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, the people of Israel, of the uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's what my past was like, Paul says. And then jump down a few verses to our verse in verse 13. I need to forget that though. All that stuff that I was proud of, all that stuff that I tied myself to, I'm going to let it go. It's worthless. It's. Do you remember the word he used? It's excrement compared to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So this is what he means. There's an author named Dick Kies. He's a... Uh, He's worked with Labrie for a long time, this Francis Schaeffer's Institute of Apologetics and Evangelism. He wrote a really fantastic book called Beyond Identity. And one of the things he says in this book is he talks about how you and I tie our, tie our identities and who we are, the way that we get meaning to certain figures that we create in our head called models, our heroes. He says this, All of us have models of some sort, real or imaginary people with whom we identify, the person that you want to be, the person that is in your best moments, you think that I'm kind of getting to be like this person. But it's a target. In your head, it's your hero. Our models represent in flesh and blood what to us is heroic or glorious. Now, Dick Kai says that it's not, your model is not Superman or Michael Jordan or the greatest chef in the whole world or the mom who has all the answers are the accountant who never makes a mistake. Your model is not somebody else. Your model is you acting perfectly. The model that you have, and I, I never pretend that I'm Michael Jordan, but I frequently will pretend that I'm the Aaron Miller who knows everything and makes no mistakes and solves all the problems. That's my hero. That's my model. It looks just like me, talks like me, just always nails it every time. Here's what Kais goes on to say. Your model self is an ideal self-portrait with no warts. It's the person or people that you would want to be and maybe that you're a little bit already. Now here's, here's, here's what he goes on to say is that that guy is always going to let you down. That guy, the model, the hero that you have in your head is not strong enough to bear the weight of glory. It will fail. That person will screw up. And, and Kaiser's point is that when that person screws up, that's why you experience shame. It's because the person that you imagined that you were going to be didn't reach that goal. And sometimes this is moral, and sometimes it's not moral. Sometimes it's, sometimes you get caught in a sin, you know, and you don't want to be a sinful person, and people notice you're a sinful person, and it's, it's shameful. For frequently it's not moral. Frequently it's just, you don't live up to the standards that you've set for yourself. Last week, so uh, Carmen came up to me before church today and said, 
you are so good at knowing people's names. And I like to pretend that I'm really good at that. And then last week on the way out, I like blew four people's names, which is super embarrassing. Here's a person that you've know, you, you know, you've had conversations with them. You might have gone to lunch with them. You've sat in their living room and talked to them and you say, hi, Chris. And they're like, oh, my name is Steve. That's really, that's, that's completely shameful. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about. My identity, I tie it up with, I'm the guy who can know everybody's name. It's a stupid thing, right? So if, if you, if you're at the high school, you will have already heard this because I said this in chapel this week, but so, you know, when you're, I also like to pretend that I'm like a fairly normal guy and, uh, not at all a dork. And at the high school this week, I teach on the lower level and I was coming upstairs and a guy, a student, Antonio, was coming behind me. I had said hi to him in the hallway, and then I was walking, and he was uh, maybe four or five paces behind me. And I'm carrying my work bag. I'm getting ready to leave. And I, my toe catches on the step, and I just wipe out on the stairs, like face first on the stairs, which physically it's not a big deal. You know, I, I've fallen before. But here's this high school kid who just saw me, like, wipe out on the stairs like a freshman, Right? And I, intense amount of shame. And then what makes it worse is he comes up and he walks with me and he tries to be nice. He says, he, Antonio says to me, he says, I, I really like that work bag. Like what high school student like <laughs> says to you, I really like your work bag. So I said, well, yeah, thanks. It's a nice bag, but thanks especially for being nice to me and trying to make me feel less awkward. Although you're actually making me feel less awkward. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. I had this standard in my head, Aaron Miller, non-dork. And then I blow it, and there's shame, because I can't possibly walk up and down the stairs of my life and never fall on my face. That My, my tying up my identity with Aaron Miller, non-dork, that's not strong enough to bear the weight of glory. I will blow it, and I will experience shame. And I don't know, what, what, it could be any, any number of things for you, right? It could be like caught in a private sin. It could just be caught picking your nose. It could be losing your temper and having everybody, you, you notice that people are looking at you like, whoa, are you okay? It could be like you knew that you were going to win that case and then you didn't. It could be your kid throwing a tamper, uh, temper tantrum on the floor in Target and the shame that comes with that. It could be people finding out that you're struggling in your marriage after you've spent the past year posting things on social media about how I just love my spouse so much. These are the kind of things that we tie our identity up in. This is who I am. I've got it together. I have value. There's a hero in my mind, and I'm going to be that hero. And it can't, we, we can't possibly reach that. And Paul is saying, at some point, all that stuff was good. I knew what my genealogy was. I kept the law but at some point I realized that it couldn't possibly bear the weight of glory. And I have to toss it all aside. I have to leave it all behind. I have to say goodbye to the good dad that I dream that I can be. I have to say goodbye to the good pastor that I dream that I can be. I have to say goodbye to the non-dork who doesn't trip on stairs. I have to say goodbye to all those people. Not that it's not important to try to be a good father or a husband or a good lawyer or a good mom or a good accountant or a good bus driver, whatever it is that you do. What I'm saying is when you tie your identity up in those things, guaranteed, you will experience shame. 
And instead, you have to leave those things behind. Paul is saying, and chase after this goal, strain for this goal of knowing Jesus. Because what Jesus offers you, end of verse 14, is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? For Paul, the call of God in Christ Jesus is this. God calls you to be His child. God chooses you guys to be His children. God allows you to hear that voice and say, yes, I am God's child. That's all you need. God loves you for the sake of Jesus Christ, no questions asked. There's no shame that can touch that. There's no amount of stair-tripping or temper tantrums or mistakes at work that can blow that. Have you heard the call of God in Christ Jesus? I, I promise you you have because you're actually hearing it right now. As long as I'm reading God's Word to you, this is the voice of God calling you to believe that you belong to Him. That all of your shame is behind you. That God loves you so much that He became a human so that He could die for your sins and rise from the dead so that you could be His child and He could guarantee you His resurrection someday. There is no shame in that. There is nothing but glory. Amen.